It's our final podcast of 2023 and the follow-up to our third birthday special episode. And as we do each year, we're going to look back and provide a brief summary of every question we've answered on the podcast, from should I eat like the pros, to what's the deal with magnesium, and how do I work out my fluid needs during exercise. So if you're new to the podcast and you don't have time to go back through the whole back catalogue, or you just want a refresher and the key points from this year's episodes, this is the one for you. Hello and welcome to Fueling Endurance, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. And on today's episode, we'll be summarising every topic covered on the podcast in the past year. But before we get to that, this episode of Fueling Endurance is brought to you by the Fueling Endurance ebook. This ebook provides comprehensive written articles covering the contents of the first two years of the podcast. At over 260 pages, it's packed with practical tips and suggestions, tables, diagrams, flowcharts, as well as stories and quotes from expert researchers, nutrition practitioners, coaches, and athletes who have been guests on the podcast. Each part of the book can be read as a standalone article or as a section of articles on a particular topic. It provides an invaluable resource for the runner, cyclist, triathlete, or coach seeking to improve their nutrition gain and address common nutrition questions or challenges that they face. It's also a great last-minute Christmas present for the endurance athlete in your life. Some of the sections that are covered in the book include fueling, hydration and electrolytes, recovery, body composition, diet types and trends, specific nutrients and supplements, practical and logistical concerns, nutrition in extreme environments, nutrition for specific types of events, nutrition for specific groups of athletes, gadgets, gizmos and data, and a section around troubleshooting, which is potentially going to be the most popular part of the book, looking at things like cramping, gut issues, injury, sleep, dental health, and so on. The Fueling Endurance ebook is now available from our website, fuelingendurance.com and also now available for Kindle via Amazon. And the sales of the book help support the cost of running this podcast, so we really appreciate all the support that we've had with the ebook. And also, if you want to get practical sports nutrition news, tips, and tricks delivered directly to your inbox every couple of weeks, you can also join the Fueling Endurance email newsletter. It's completely free, and you can sign up at fuelingendurance.com, and that's fueling spelt with one L. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at Fueling Endurance on Instagram or Facebook or at Fuel Endurance on Twitter, aka X, or you can contact us via our website, fuelingendurance.com. So there's no guest on today's podcast, Steph, so we're going to be going through each of the episodes published in the year since our last annual summary and providing the key take-home messages for each one of those. So this covers episodes 51 through to 68 of the podcast. But if you'd like to listen to the summaries of the previous two years' worth of episodes, you can go back and find those in the back catalogue as well. So if you go back to episode 26, you'll find the summary of the first year's worth of episodes. And in episode 50B, you'll find the summary for year two. But for now, let's get stuck into our summary of year three of Fueling Endurance. 
Let's do it. All right, so our first episode that we need to cover off, Steph, can you outrun a bad diet? Our guest for this was Gay Rutherford, who's a dietitian with the Tasmania Institute of Sport and also works in private practice. So can you outrun a bad diet? Well, this really depends on what you mean by the word bad. And people will have obviously different opinions on that, different definitions of that. And we could argue that the term bad is probably not a useful one anyway, but a lot of people are going to use it. So I guess what conjures up you know, outrunning a bad diet, people would probably think of a diet that's high in what we call discretionary foods. So you know, your high fat, high salt, high sugar, maybe alcohol, those sorts of foods. And yes, you definitely can outrun those sorts of things with a very high energy expenditure, but it is going to be quite difficult. If you're a high level athlete and you're training 15, 20 hours a week or more, then yeah, it probably is is certainly doable. And particularly because high level athletes are also going to have a higher rate of energy expenditure that, you know, they can run at a faster pace or put out more power on the bike for the same relative effort, the same percentage of their max heart rate and so on. But I guess ultimately, we don't think this is a really a, a good question or a good way to, I guess, get your head around nutrition and, and how you think about the relationship between your food and your exercise, because ultimately exercise shouldn't be used to compensate for dietary choices, you know, whatever they may be. Exercise should be there to meet certain goals in terms of either health goals, physical or mental health, or particular sporting goals. And then nutrition should complement whatever that is, rather than exercise being seen as a way of, quote unquote, burning off the calories from a, quote unquote, bad diet. Our next episode was how do I optimize hydration for race day? Now, this is very much relevant at the moment with summer here in the Southern Hemisphere. And our special guests for this were Dr. Chris Irwin from Griffith University and also Ellie Pashley, who's a Tokyo Olympian in the marathon. So we talked about the fact that defining what being well hydrated actually means, and the scientific term is euhydration, is actually really hard to define scientifically, let alone in the, the general sphere. And so there's all sorts of different definitions or opinions on what being euhydrated looks like or how you could measure that or define it. And really, there's, there's no one definition that, that meets the, the perfect thing. And we, we discussed in the episode, there's a, a really great article that looks at this and they sort of call it the elusive gold standard in terms of measuring euhydration. But from a practical point of view, we can use what's called the WUT model, the W-U-T model. So W for weight, U for urine, and T for thirst. So basically, if you can imagine a Venn diagram with three components to it, one is weight, one is urine, and one is thirst. So on the weight side of things, you're looking at a weight change of, of 1% below what your normal morning body weight is. So if you get up in the morning and you're 1% lighter than you were yesterday, that may be due to fluid loss and therefore a little bit of hypohydration. So maybe you're not adequately hydrated, but that alone doesn't tell you much because it can be other reasons that that, that weight might be a bit lower. You can look at urine color. So if your urine color is darker, that would suggest your kidneys are sort of conserving water. And so it's not coming out in the urine. It's working a little bit harder to, to try and hang on to that water. Again, might be suggestive. Someone's a little bit hypohydrated, but is not definitive in and of itself. And then finally, the T for thirst. If you're feeling particularly thirsty, again, that's probably an indicator that maybe you do need to drink a bit more. You might be a little bit dehydrated, but there can be other reasons that you might feel thirsty in terms of having a dry mouth from certain prescription medications and things like that as well. So 
any one of those on its own is not necessarily that specific. But when you combine the three in our Venn diagram and look at the middle part where they overlap, if we have two of these factors overlapping, then there's probably a better chance that, yes, maybe we do need to drink more. And if all three are overlapping, so we've lost a bit of weight, our urine is a darker color, and we're thirsty, then almost certainly we do need to drink more to be well hydrated. We also talked in that episode about hyperhydration. How can we be overhydrated at the start of exercise and retain some extra fluid? And there might be certain scenarios where you might want to do that, very hot environments where getting enough fluid or being able to tolerate it from a gut perspective is quite difficult. And we discussed with Ellie, obviously, the marathon at the Tokyo Olympics is, is one of those examples. Now, there is an effect of hyperhydration, but it's a pretty small effect from the work that, that Chris and I have done looking at um, all the, the currently published studies and, and doing what we call a meta-analysis of those. So really for that, the hyperhydration, whether it's using glycerol or sodium added to a large amount of fluid to retain that and not just pee it out, it can be potentially helpful, probably more for high-level athletes in very high environments, but there are downsides. And you know, Ellie certainly talked about the potential downsides in terms of gastrointestinal side effects of that approach. Also, the fact that you have to you know, do this several hours before you start your race. So if you've got an early morning start, you're getting up well before the crack of dawn just to, to do this, then potentially it may not be necessarily worth it. And then finally, obviously, you do need to get the doses and the timing right with either the sodium load or the glycerol load. Uh, we won't go through that now because it really needs some professional support for that to make sure you don't get it wrong because the side effects and the consequences of not getting that right are quite quite severe, I suppose. So definitely something we would recommend professional advice on and individualized advice if you're going down that track. Our next episode was how do I work out my fluid needs during exercise? So this is, I guess, looking at how much sweat am I losing during exercise and how much of that should I be trying to replace? So obviously, we're trying to work out how much sweat we lose during exercise. We're looking at the weight change. So we're looking at weight change while accounting for the food and fluid we've consumed. Obviously, if we're consuming food or fluid during exercise, that's essentially causing weight gain or less weight loss. And if we go to the toilet, that's extra weight loss that's not from sweat, it's from other reasons. So we need to mathematically sort of compensate for those if we're doing those. Ideally, we would do this kind of sweat testing in race-like conditions, so similar pace to what we would be racing at, similar terrain if you're doing something that's going to be up and down quite a bit. And ideally in sessions that are at least an hour long and probably no more than three hours long, that one to three hours is kind of the sweet spot in terms of getting a, an accurate representation, both from body weight reflecting sweat loss, but also that the sweat loss is what you would expect over several hours of exercise if your events go for that long. The other thing is also we need to bear in mind with most endurance and ultra endurance events the weather is not going to stay the same for the duration of the event. If you're doing something more than two or three hours, the weather's going to heat up or cool down. If you're doing trail events, you know, ultra running and things, it's going to go overnight potentially as well. Or Ironman, you're going to have the cooled part in the early morning and then the hotter part in the middle of the day and so on. So we do need to, to factor this in when we do our testing and understand that just measuring a sweat rate once doesn't really tell us that much. We need to measure sweat rate multiple times across the different kind of conditions and terrain and so on that we expect to be racing in and build a profile of sweat rate rather than a single number. We can then use that in different ways. I tend to use the lower end of that sweat rate to help us work out, well, how much fluid can we put carbs into? 
and know that we're always going to get that amount of fluid so we can kind of rely on that to get carbs in. And then at the high end, that can kind of define how much fluid needs to be available to us at any given time. And then where we sit between the low and the high end is going to be dictated largely by thirst that's going to move us up and down within that range as the temperature changes over the day. Now, the final thing, if you are going to do a sweat rate test and you're going to measure your body weight before and after exercise and look at the fluid loss, and I should have said before that one kilo is equivalent to one litre of of fluid, the other things to capture will be an estimate of your thirst at the end of the session. So out of 10, zero is not thirsty at all. 10 is desperately thirsty. And also gastrointestinal tolerance. Do you feel sort of any GI discomfort? These are can be potentially barriers to optimizing your fluid intake. So if you decide you're losing quite a lot of fluid during exercise and you're not really tolerating drinking much of that back again, then you can start to look, well, is it GI tolerance issue? Then I need to think about doing some gut training. Is it that I simply didn't feel thirsty? Well, I need to maybe be a little bit more aggressive relative to my thirst. So having the thirst and the GI symptoms or tolerance there is a really helpful add-on to, to give you more context of what to do about that sweat testing when you get a result around a sweat rate. Okay, our next episode, Steph, we're not going to go into details here, but it was actually our 100th episode. So it was a special episode where we had a chat to Akana Murray-Bartlett, who ran from basically the top to the bottom of Australia, tip to toe, she called it, in late 2022. So Akana is also a qualified nutritionist herself, so she had some good insights into, I guess, how she thought about nutrition for her event and and what she was doing food-wise, because obviously that's something that's top of mind for her, given that that's her sort of academic background as well. So she basically ran a marathon a day and ran 155 consecutive marathons for a total distance of 6,200 kilometers. And that was a a world record in terms of consecutive marathons run by a woman. So she set a, a new Guinness world record for that from Cape York at the top of Australia, the tip down to, to Melbourne, at the toe. And she managed to raise over $60,000. And so that was $10 for every kilometer run for the Wilderness Society. So Congratulations to Akana, and it was a great episode. So if you're interested, you can go back and have a listen to that one. Awesome. So next question was, should I eat like the pros? And we were joined by Associate Professor Greg Cox, formerly worked for Triathlon Australia and the Australian Institute of Sport, and now works for Bond University and Jeremy Peacock, elite paratriathlete, aiming to qualify for the Paralympics. So in brief, I would say, should I eat like the pros? Probably not, as although we would like to. So we know elite athletes, as you mentioned before, they train more hours a week and they generally train at a higher absolute intensity. So they are burning more calories, they're burning through more carbs per hour, and they're also doing more hours per week. So their requirements are much greater for themselves than compared to the non-professional athletes. And one of the adaptations that they get from training for so many years is that they actually have a greater capacity to to store muscle carbohydrates, so we call that glycogen, and therefore they need more carbs to help top up the muscle stores. And then because they're churning through the energy, they will drain those stores much more quicker. 
And so in terms of the guidelines, we tend to talk for carbohydrate grams per kilo a day. And so for the professional triathletes, with their actual body weight, a lot of that generally will be made up of muscle mass compared to fat mass. And this is probably quite different to your non-professional athletes. So elites will have a lower percentage body fat. Therefore, muscle mass is going to be greater in terms of their proportion of body weight. So elites need to go to the higher end of the targets that we set for those carbohydrate guidelines. And the ranges are usually for that we suggest the carbohydrate guidelines. They're usually actually pitched for really well, highly trained athletes. And so our, you gave a really nice example there of this may relate to a marathon runner, a male marathon runner who's doing a sub three hour run and then for females that's probably a sub three and a half hour runner and then in terms of if we talk cycling well that's a a grade or elite domestic level cyclist and then um, for your triathletes it's your age groupers that are probably coming in the top 10 in the competition so non-elite athletes possibly go for the lower end of the range or maybe even less. It really kind of depends on the on the context there for the non-elite athletes. So unfortunately, I uh, would not be eating like the pros. Otherwise, you might be putting on a bit of extra um, fat mass. So next question, what's nutrition got to do with bone fractures? And we were lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Luke Hilkins from Han University of Applied Sciences in the Netherlands. He conducted some of his PhD research with the Yumbo Visma cycling team. And we were also joined by Bobby Clay, a former elite runner and European junior champion in the 1500 metres who had quite a significant story to, to share. So we know that bone is a dynamic tissue, but that changes occur much more slowly than in muscle. And bone has a protein component, which we um, know as collagen, and a mineral component, which is generally mostly calcium but there's also other minerals like phosphorus and magnesium and so our aim really is to maximize both of these types of components in bone because that helps give us the the toughness and the uh, rigidity of 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 bone so so the mineral content of bone is a reservoir for storage of, of minerals and they can be released into the blood to help maintain nice stable levels. So the body always wants to be in this state of homeostasis. So we want to keep a normal stable level of minerals in the blood and that's because, for example, calcium is really important for particular body functions. So it's really important for the contraction of, of our heart muscle. So when we have eaten a meal that's rich in calcium and we have an excess amount of calcium, then that will generally be stored in the bone. And then vice versa, if we have a lack of calcium in the, in the diet, then we're going to take that calcium from our bone to help keep those levels nice and stable in, in the blood. 
And so I guess we want to know what are the possible risk factors for bone fractures when we're talking about nutrition. So we talked about whether calcium sweat losses would be a significant factor contributing to potentially bone fractures in athletes. And uh, generally, I guess we would say that the amount we lose from sweat is typically going to be quite small, except for the, the athletes that are on the extreme end where they're potentially losing a lot of sweat because of the amount of training that they're doing. But generally, for the majority of us, it's probably not the main reason that's going to be influencing weakened bones. And also, typically, we probably get a decent amount of calcium in our diet unless we're following a a strict type of dietary regime. So then we talked about, well, what about protein and amino acids or even collagen? And again, most athletes typically will get this stuff in their diet, again, unless they're following a really strict dietary pattern. And then what about vitamin D? We know that vitamin D is really important for our bone health. It plays a role in helping regulate our calcium absorption from the food that we eat, and it also controls how minerals are added and removed uh, from the bone. And so low vitamin D we know can be an issue for low bone mineral density, but the majority of athletes typically we would think will tend to get the sunlight because they're outdoors and they're exercising. However, you know, again, that will tend to depend on the time of year and a bit of their location there as well. And then what about other factors in terms of nutrition? Well, one of the key ones there is looking at undernutrition and low energy availability. And we know that having low energy availability will definitely have an impact on things like our reproductive hormones that have important roles in bone turnover. So this is a risk factor. And also we spoke about carbohydrate availability and there's definitely some research coming out there in terms of um, bone health. And then in terms of athletes, we also need to consider the type of exercise they're doing and how much of that provides a, a stimulus to the bone. And so for the athletes that don't have much impact type exercise, let's say cyclists, if they're not doing any other form of exercise, then they can definitely be at potentially a higher risk for developing bone fractures. And then therefore, what can athletes do to help reduce their risk for bone fractures? Well, we talked about doing some impact type exercise. Luke's research found that about five minutes a day of jumping or plyometric type exercise for cyclists actually did help reduce at least the decrease in bone density or even doing resistance type training can be beneficial. We also want to make sure we're getting an adequate amount of calcium in our diet. We're getting sufficient vitamin D from some sunlight exposure. Our protein intake's good and we're making sure we're getting sufficient energy for for what we need to, to do in terms of exercise and our daily body functions. Collagen may not play such a a big role than what maybe we think. Luke looked at supplementing with this protein and its effect on bone density in cyclists, and he didn't see any sort of added kind of benefit beyond the, the jumping exercise that they got the cyclists to do. And maybe that's because these cyclists already had 
a good intake of calcium, vitamin D, energy and, and carbohydrate availability. So next question, what's the nutrition roadmap to recovery from relative energy deficiency in sport? And we were joined by Dr. Bronwyn Lundy. She works for Rowing Australia and does a lot of research in this area. And we were joined by former elite marathon and half marathon runner, also host of the Running for Real podcast, Tina Muir. And so I guess REDS, as we know, is a consequence of, of low energy availability. There's consequences in terms of performance. There's also consequences in terms of our health. And Bronwyn spoke about the solution to get out of REDS is to basically we need to improve our energy availability. And often females may get told that all you need to do is take the, the contraceptive pill and this will fix things. However, that's not actually addressing the underlying issue. So it really does need to be centred around making sure our energy availability is, is sufficient and then it's more about, well, how do we go about doing this for, for athletes? Often if we were to say to an athlete, hey, just train less, they're probably going to run 100 miles away from us. So it's not always looked upon that favourably. But for some athletes, they can actually reduce the incidental activity and particularly just start looking at things that may be not actually being that positive for their training. They can, they can look at taking that out. In terms of looking at the eating, if an athlete has maybe unintentionally consumed low energy intake, then it could be just as simple as talking to them about this and maybe you only need to increase their energy intake with one main meal. But for other athletes, it might be much bigger than that and that might be that you need to increase the frequency of their meals or maybe you need to get clever in terms of the, the macronutrient distribution. So adding in whether it be carbs, protein or, or fats, it will depend on, on the athlete. Often when we're looking at athletes, what we'll tend to do is see if we can put the carbohydrate around their training. Maybe it's missing in, in particular areas. And then maybe there's some athletes that are actually lacking in, in their protein intake. So then what we'll do is we'll try and have a look at that and see if we're getting a nice distribution of, of that. All right. Thank you, Steph. Our next episode was actually our second most downloaded for the year. And the question was, what's the deal with magnesium? And we were joined by Dr. Sophie Killer, who previously worked with British Athletics, which is where she was when she did this particular bit of research. So magnesium is found in a wide variety of foods, including grains, leafy greens, nuts, legumes, and so on. And magnesium is commonly used by a lot of athletes in supplemental form, but there is very little research in athletes about whether they need magnesium, whether it's beneficial or not, and if so, why. So if we look more broadly at magnesium, it has many roles in the body. It's involved with nervous system function and muscle contraction. And I think this is where a lot of the hype and the, the marketing around magnesium comes from is just these general terms about what magnesium does. And when you ask people, you know, why do you take magnesium? Often they don't really have a, a clear answer for that apart from everyone else does. But usually it involves something around muscles or recovery or nerves or something like that, sometimes with cramping as well, which we'll get onto in a minute. 
There is some suggestion that magnesium intake in the general population in Western countries is a bit on the low side and that possibly as much as 40% of the general population have a low magnesium status, not clinically deficient, but maybe lower than ideal. And this may be due to a whole variety of things, including the use of more sort of processed foods that might be low in magnesium. It might be due to a potential reduction in magnesium in things like fruit and vegetables over the last 100 years or so due to farming practices and the change in the the magnesium content in the soil and, and so on. So Sophie and the team at UK Athletics measured red cell magnesium concentration in track and field athletes that they were working with. Now, red cell magnesium is actually not a common blood test that you can get, certainly not here in Australia. There is still a bit of controversy. We mentioned this at the end of the episode in the literature, whether red cell magnesium is a proper way to reflect magnesium status in the body. We know it's certainly better than just measuring serum magnesium, which is the common one that you can get, but how good it is, we're still not, or there's still some controversy around that. What we do know is that blood magnesium concentration does fluctuate during exercise. We don't really know yet what this means or whether it's important or not, but it may be. And then there might be a suggestion, Sophie mentioned, that taking magnesium deliberately before exercise to try and offset that fluctuation in magnesium may be a beneficial thing, but we just don't know yet. If someone is genuinely magnesium deficient, then supplementation may improve performance in the same way that iron supplementation would improve performance in someone who was iron deficient. But there doesn't seem to be any obvious advantage, and this includes for the prevention of cramping, if someone is otherwise healthy and not in a state of magnesium deficiency. In Australia, it's recommended that you don't supplement with any more than 350 milligrams a day of magnesium through supplements, and this is on top of whatever you get from food. And just to translate that into a couple of common products that you would see here in Australia, the Endura sports drink, any Australians will probably know what that is. They actually recommend 163 milligrams an hour during exercise of magnesium. So that's quite a lot. You're going to exceed that sort of recommended daily amount after only two hours of exercise. The other one that's really common at the moment is the Pillar Performance Triple Magnesium, and that's about 310 milligrams of magnesium a day. So that's around that amount that's sort of recommended from a supplementation point of view. Now, there has been a whole bunch of claims made on supplements of magnesium around cramping, muscle recovery, performance, sleep, etc. There really, there is no evidence for any of those at this stage. The only possible truth in here might be that if you are somewhat magnesium deficient and the supplementation corrects that deficiency, then there might be a performance advantage in that. But we really don't have clear evidence of that in athletes. There are no studies that have taken a whole bunch of magnesium deficient athletes, given the magnesium and then measured the performance improvement. That evidence just doesn't exist. There is evidence as far back as 1992 that shows that magnesium supplementation doesn't improve marathon performance if the runners are not already magnesium deficient. So overall, we don't know a lot about magnesium. It's hard to get the red cell magnesium tests that are probably required to to get some insight into that. And so we don't really uh, have a good handle on it, except that probably there's a lot more hype than there is science in this particular area. Again, not to say that magnesium is useless in a moderate dose. It's relatively safe. But what it does in terms of supplementation, we really can't say at this stage. All right, our next episode, this is one that, that I think we were both quite passionate about 
Stefan, that was looking at the environmental impact of sports nutrition and our choices as athletes around our diet, and also about things like the packaging that we use in our gels and drinks and, and all those kinds of things. So we were joined by Dr. Alba Rejant Closer from Agroscope, which is an environmental agency, but Alba is actually a sports dietitian herself from Andorra. And we're also joined by Damien Hall, who's an ultra runner, and he's an author of a book, We Can't Run Away From This, which is looking at the impact that running and and all aspects of running have on the environment, and is also a co-founder of The Green Runners. So there are multiple parts where we need to consider environmental impact, and particularly around what impact that food might have on the environment. And I guess the main areas are to do with the production, distribution, transport, storage of food are going to be greenhouse gas emissions, land use, water use, and what's called eutrophication. So basically that's the runoff of minerals like phosphorus and nitrogen, mostly from fertilizers and other chemicals into lakes, rivers, and other waterways that might cause excessive growth of algae or other plants that are harmful to the the things that live in that waterway, so fish and so on. Now, to figure out all the effects on greenhouse gas emissions, land use, water use, eutrophication, you can bring all of that together using a a process called life cycle assessment, which is quite a complex method. And I know from what Alba said, because of that, we don't have comprehensive life cycle assessments on a lot of sports nutrition specific products at this stage. But what we do know, I guess, from a general perspective, point of view around food is that the greatest environmental impacts are not actually the things like the single-use packaging that you get with your gels and your drink powder sachets and so on. That's not to say we shouldn't reduce the use of those and use more bulk packaged products that are made up in and using you know reusable containers like gel flasks and things like that. It's also a lot cheaper to do it that way. But the biggest impacts really on uh, environment on the environment from our food as an athlete are going to be our protein choices and the sources of protein that we get in our diet. So producing animal proteins takes a large amount of input in terms of growing cattle, whether it's cows, sheep, it's pigs, etc. A lot of land, a lot of water, potentially feed if it's feedlot grass if it's not and produces a large amount of outputs so co2 equivalents and that's especially true in ruminant animals things like cows where they produce a lot of methane which is particularly damaging for the environment there's also a lot of eutrophication of waterways that happens with this kind of animal farming so really i guess the key message from here is trying to reduce down as much as we can the portion sizes of these animal-based protein sources. So really not having the massive three, 400-gram steak when we know we don't need that amount of protein in a single meal to optimize our body's recovery from training or exercise. We only need about 20 to 30 grams of protein in a single meal or snack to get that effect. So even if you, you don't want to go vegan and you want to still include these animal products in your diet, that's fine, but just make sure you're not over-consuming these products relative to what your body actually needs. So minimizing the consumption of animal protein sources as much as possible. Well, there will be some concerns about this from a nutritional adequacy perspective in terms of things like iron or vitamin B12, particularly with vegan diets. It can certainly be achieved, uh, B12 being the the one exception that might need supplementation. Uh, It does require a little bit more planning, but it's certainly very much possible. Now, the other big impacts in terms of the environment will be buying food in season, and often that's more important than buying it locally. 
and also minimizing food waste because a huge amount of food that we eat gets wasted and obviously that's at a big environmental cost because then we have to buy more food on top of that that has to also be produced now other aspects that you might want to consider as a runner cyclist or triathlete in terms of your personal environmental footprint will be firstly air travel and this is a surprisingly big one so the question is do you really need to fly halfway around the world to compete in an event when you could compete in a local one Uh, and if you are going to make a trip think of it as a valuable commodity this trip rather than something you're just going to fly in spend a couple of days and then fly back again make a big trip of it and go do one trip for a long period of time rather than multiple little trips is obviously better from an environmental point of view and i actually noticed steph that killian jornay actually mentioned this just this week one of his commitments for next year in terms of reducing his environmental footprint is less flights and less travel to, to international races. And he's going to do more local races or races in Europe where he can take the train, which obviously has a much less environmental impact than jumping on a, on a flight. The other one is clothing and equipment, and this has a huge potential environmental impact in our sport. So the question is, do you really need that new jersey, that new race T-shirt, the finishers medal, the latest Garmin when your old one is working fine? Um, yeah. It's just not necessary in a lot of cases. So we can kind of minimize things by doing that, keeping shoes for as long as they're still working. In some cases, having repairable shoes now is starting to become a bit of a thing in running. So over time, hopefully that will grow and people will see the value in that rather than the pair of ultra fast runners that you throw away after one use, like we used just recently this year in, in a couple of races at the pro level. Ultimately, though, all of these changes that I've just discussed have a relatively small impact compared to system changes. So as Damien mentioned, things like where you bank, where you invest your money, who you vote for, and the messages that politicians receive from their constituents is actually going to have a greater environmental impact than your choices of flights or diet or any of those things. Not to say that they're not important, but those other bigger picture things, while they might seem relatively insignificant, they can actually have a huge impact on the environment so have a think about those as well and obviously if you want to go back and you can have a listen to that episode for more specific advice around that or you can have a look into to Damien's book he covers off that in, in quite a bit of detail in there as well. Yeah I think just this week they were um, paying out Swifty for um, all the visits she's making to her boyfriend for the for those flights so. <laughs> That's the one. Um, yep yep there you go. And um, Damien made me feel not so bad about my old shaggy shoes. I'm, I'm keeping those for, for longer, so I'm, I'm doing my bit there too. So next question was, is animal protein superior to plant protein? We were joined by Dr. Alastair Montaigne from the University of Exeter. And when we're asking this question, we're also talking about non-animal protein, which um, is what some of his work was was involved in. So this is looking at algae um, protein and also mycoprotein as well, um, which comes from um, fungi. And so much of the recommendations based on animal protein being superior to plant protein actually comes from early studies that compared individual proteins in isolation where the plant source in most of these cases was almost always soy protein. 
And one of the main reasons, I guess, for this approach was that the researchers at the time were probably more interested in the mechanisms involved and how changing different factors change the underlying biology involved there. So there was no kind of head-to-head comparison of different protein sources, but this was kind of lost in translation to the general population and to athletes, and they kind of really just saw the headlines comparisons being whey versus soy or milk versus soy and whey superior and milk protein superior to plant-based protein. But in the last five or so years, there's actually been an increase in the comparison of other non-animal protein sources, which includes wheat-based protein, corn, rice, pea, potato, you name it, there's, there, there's that type of protein. And they, that's where the same amount of protein has actually resulted in pretty much the same response as milk protein, which we've generally considered as being the gold standard type of of protein. And so I guess it's important to remember that protein's rarely ever eaten in isolation unless you're a um, bodybuilder where you do consume protein in isolation. I know as endurance athletes, runners, cyclists and triathletes, they'll tend to eat a variety of nutrients in their meals and their snacks. And they're, you know, doing that for a range of, of reasons in terms of fueling and recovery. So we need to think not only about comparisons of isolated protein sources, but what happens when they're actually put into a meal with other foods. And there hasn't been a lot of work on this, although the research so far suggests that individual whole foods have a similar or at times maybe even slightly better response to the isolated proteins and that's when we're keeping the overall protein content the, the same. So there's very few studies looking at whole meals or one-off meals or a pattern of eating over a few days or weeks, but that's where any differences due to those kind of anti-nutritional factors in plant-based protein sources may become even less relevant as the animal proteins will tend to be eaten with the, the plant foods. And so there are a small number of studies that have been done, and that's um, one of the reasons we spoke to Alastair because he's involved in this, this type of work. And he looked at either over a few days or a few weeks what the, the impact of consuming meals were, and he showed basically that the type of protein makes no difference provided that the overall amount of protein is adequate. And when we're saying that protein is adequate, that means that generally you're looking at about 1.6 grams per kilo a day. And we typically would say to an athlete that we want to sort of do that as three to five meals or snacks in the day. So that typically works out to be about 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilo, which we typically would say is around 20 to 30 grams of protein, which you spoke about before our. And so coming back to, I guess, the question is animal protein superior to plant protein or non-animal protein? And the answer is probably sometimes when consumed in isolation or in inadequate amounts, but otherwise, apart from that, then probably not. 
Uh, and this, I guess, gives us confidence that we don't have to make a compromise between optimizing recovery with protein and reducing our environmental impact, which you just spoke about. So even if you accept the need for more protein from plant sources, the amount that we generally talk about with that is about an extra 10 to 15%. So that is going from, let's say, 20 grams of protein to 23 grams of protein in a single serve. So it's not that much extra at all. The next question we tackled was how do I decipher sports nutrition information? And we were joined by Dr. Dana Lease, and she at the time was working for EF Tibco SVB women's pro cycling team, also working with the Golden State Warriors NBA team and also the company performance nutrition professionals. So I guess with sports nutrition research, as we know, there's been a massive increase in it and it is bloody hard for us to to keep up with it so I I can only imagine how it is for for the athletes and the general population as well and what comes with a massive increase in sports nutrition unfortunately can also come a decrease in the quality of of this type of research so there's going to be some really good quality but there's also going to be a bit of I guess less than ideal type of research so the question is then how can we distinguish between what's good and what is not so good research and it can become difficult particularly if you're not well versed in the area of research. So Dana gave us some really good tips for where you can find good sports nutrition information in terms of social media. We spoke about My Sports Science that has some really good quality sports nutrition information there and that is run by a guest we've had on the show, Asuka Yukendrop. And now you've written for, for My Sports Science in relation to sodium and hydration. And then also Gatorade Sports Science Institute. And there's always people that then would probably cringe at us for saying that because they're like, oh, it's a sports drink brand. But as we mentioned and you highlighted that a lot of the stuff here isn't actually on sports drinks or hydration. There'll be some stuff on it, but there's also a lot of other sports nutrition research there. And it's written by some really prominent researchers in the field. Then we also were lucky enough to have Alex Hutchinson on the um, the podcast when we spoke about glucose monitors and um, he's a sports journalist and he really digs into the research and he tries to help explain the research in nice, easy to understand terms. So searching for him, you'll find that he's written a lot in this area of sports nutrition. And then Dana also mentioned that podcasts uh, run by qualified sports nutrition professionals can also be really handy. And of course, that would be fuelingendurance.com. And I guess just being aware of our own social biases and, and what we may be pro, that's going to influence how we interpret that data. So I think we spoke about Keto Ken and, and Vegan Sally and that they are going to have very different views when they're reading, you know, research in what, what they believe in. But there's five steps that we also spoke about with Dana and that is asking yourself, is 
this info that I'm reading actually relevant to my situation and is it even actionable? And if it's not, then don't look any further. But if it is, then you want to look at the source of information. And we spoke to Tim Crow back in episode 6A relating to, to the source of information and the quality of information. You want to look at that as well. So you want to be really careful of stories from, from athletes and individuals and any anecdotes, although that does tend to, to grab us. You want to look at the type of research study on the topic and that can be tricky for the non-scientists out there to determine whether the research was actually done well. But when you look at the research, you might want to consider what we call PICO, um, which the P stands for the population group. So is that population group actually relevant to you? Are they similar, similar athletes, similar age, gender? And then the intervention, so what did they actually do in that? Is that protocol even, you know, relevant and practical? And then the comparison, was there an actual placebo in the research? And then what's the outcome measures and are these measures actually relevant to what you're wanting to get out of that particular nutrition strategy? So you really want to think about whether your own personal bias influences how you interpret the information. And finally, consider the return on investment. So will this actually be helpful to you? How much work and or sacrifices do you have to do or actually make? And is it like realistic? Because as we know with supplements, Often we might take it for a week and then we forget about it and it's left in the pantry or the fridge. And if you're not too sure, then that's probably where you want to involve a qualified professional. Awesome. All right. Our next topic was the question, what's the quantifiable benefit of different sports nutrition strategies? And this was kind of a follow-on to what you've just discussed there, Steph. So I guess we started off by looking at really the benefits from what we call the big rocks of sports nutrition. So things like fueling and hydration. And the benefits of these are likely to be additive. So the benefit you get from carbohydrate and the benefit you get from adequate hydration will probably add on top of each other. When you look at them in isolation, you're seeing benefits generally in time trial type efforts. So that's covering a fixed distance in the fastest time possible when you do that in the lab, whether it's on a treadmill for running or it's on a bike ergometer for cycling. You generally see performance improvements, depending on obviously what the intervention is and, and what the distance is and so on, of around 2 to 5% in those kind of time trial efforts. If it's time to exhaustion, so basically how far you can go at a fixed speed or pace until you can't do it anymore, then you'd see bigger benefits than that as a general rule. Now, when we move away from those big rocks, the carbohydrates, fueling and the hydration side of things and look at things like supplements, which is often where people get excited about this stuff, then generally you, you are seeing smaller benefits, typically kind of 1% to 4% for a time trial. The other thing we see with supplements is often the effects don't appear to be additive. So it's not like you can get a 2% benefit from caffeine and then have bicarb on top of that and get another 2% and then add on nitrate and get another 2% and all of a sudden you're getting, you know, four different supplements stacked together to get a 10% benefit. It doesn't seem to work like that. Also keep in mind that these numbers are obviously averages and they're specific to certain types of athletes, certain types of events, and the particular type of conditions that that study was done in, whether it's hot conditions, cold conditions, 
a long preload. Maybe they were exercising for two or three hours before the performance test. Maybe they weren't. How long is the performance test? What is the intensity at which the performance test is done at? That kind of thing. Now, in general, what we see in research around the benefits of different sports nutrition strategies is that the more recreational athletes actually seem to get the biggest benefits from these strategies. And that's probably because there's, there's more scope for improvement compared to an elite or professional athlete, where a lot of the things that supplements, for example, are working on are already optimized in an elite athlete anyway. Now, in almost all studies, the performance trial aspect is less than 60 minutes for practical reasons even if there is a two to five hour preload beforehand. So I guess what we're saying here is that the different research studies that have been done on all these strategies are kind of targeting performance at a specific intensity that isn't always relevant to a lot of our listeners. So we can't be certain that the effects that we see in a lot of these studies will play out in some of the longer, more sustained efforts, things like long course triathlon, uh, marathon running, or ultra distance events as well. But at the end of the day, it's the best information we have and it's the best we can do from a research perspective. I guess if I was to put all of this together and kind of prioritize strategies, I'd start with the health issues that prevent you even training properly to begin with. So if you're having things like REDS, for example, or gut issues or injury and illness is persistent, you know, these are the things that you want to sort out first because they're going to stop you even getting the training done and that's going to have the biggest impact on your performance before we get into the nitty-gritties of supplements or hydration and all that kind of stuff. So that's the first thing I'd do, you know, fix obviously or you know, address the health issues. The second one would be the things that are causing DNFs in races, so cramping and gut issues and those kind of things. Then I'd focus on the big universal rocks that apply to almost everyone and, and every situation, at least to some degree, in endurance sports. So your carbohydrate and your hydration, getting those right. Then then you might start to look at some of the stuff that becomes relevant in certain situations. So things like, for example, sodium in more the longer ultra distance stuff. And then finally, once you've got all of that in place, then you might look at the supplements that give you the sprinkles on top of the icing on top of the cake. So this is going to give you maybe that last one to 3%. But knowing that more doesn't necessarily mean better here, and there doesn't seem to be an additive effect of multiple supplements. So I guess then you're choosing this particular supplement or, or combination of supplements that is easy, practical, cost-effective, and well-tolerated in terms of side effects and things like that for you, and obviously one that you feel is giving you a performance benefit. So next question, should I be taking vitamin D supplements? And we were joined by Dr. Dan Owens from Liverpool John Moores University. And vitamin D is probably more and is more like a hormone than a vitamin, but it's similar to nutrients in that we need to get it from the environment. So we've got the ultraviolet light that helps con convert the vitamin D into the active form in the skin and we also get it from our food. So vitamin D's primary function is, as we mentioned before, to regulate calcium absorption from the gut, and it's also involved in the formation of, of bone mineral using calcium in the body. But it has other roles as well, some of which we may not still fully understand, and these include involvement in the immune system as well as in muscle function. So there's different forms of vitamin D and what we produce from the sun and from animal food products is vitamin D3, 
whereas in mushrooms, it's vitamin D2. And vitamin D3 is better converted into the active forms. And so vitamin D3 supplements are preferred compared to vitamin D2 supplements. Vitamin D is further transformed um, before finally reaching the active form and it's 25-OHD that's the perform when we do any type of testing as that seemed to best reflect the body's, how adequate the levels are in the body. And usually the recommendations for 25-OHD level in the blood is greater than 50 nanomoles per litre. But Dan's recommendation based on more recent research is to aim for a level around 75 nanomoles per litre. And uh, adequate sun exposure to meet vitamin D needs generally will vary over the seasons and that's due to the angle of the sun in the sky and the extremes of this are greater the further you go away from the equator. So in Melbourne or Tasmania, in the UK, Canada, or in Scandinavia. And in Australia, our official recommendations state that we only need a few minutes of arm and leg exposure without sunscreen, and that's typically recommended mid-morning or in the afternoon, and that's where the UV index is three or above, and that's in in summer. But in winter, this increases to two to three hours a week, and that's because the UV index is not reaching the the three or or above, and that's even in the middle of, of the day in winter. And then Dan quoted 15 to 30 minutes a day of unprotected sun exposure, and that may be different in the northern hemisphere due to different thickness of the the ozone layer. And and it's pretty common, as we know, to be low in vitamin D during winter. And even for runners, cyclists and triathletes, if a lot of their training is indoors or it's early in the morning before, before they're going to work, then they may actually not be getting adequate skin exposure for optimal vitamin D. And for a large proportion of the population, athletes or not, supplementation over the winter months is generally required to help prevent a deficiency, but it's often unnecessary in summer as long as as they, they are going outdoors. Whilst testing before supplementing blindly is recommended, there's minimal risk of vitamin D toxicity if you only take the recommended dose. And that dose is 1,000 to 2,000 IU per day of a vitamin D3 supplement, so not D2. And finally, if you are testing and you want to be proactive, then testing just before the start of winter is recommended because that will help you figure out if you need to actually supplement or you can wait until the second half of of winter. And then if you're testing at the end of winter, it's probably not that helpful because that's likely to indicate your lowest value of the year and then it's probably too late to, to do anything then anyway in terms of those levels have already been low for a long period of time. So next question, what nutrition advice for the general population 
doesn't apply to athletes. And we did this episode in-house. I'm not going to go through each of the the ones that we mentioned in details, but the the main ones that we spoke about was intuitive, mindful eating and trusting your appetite. That can be helpful sometimes, but not always. And especially when there's larger training volumes, then it's not always that helpful. And so you may think that exercise will always make you feel hungry, but it gets a a bit trickier than that. So exercise also has the ability to either increase or decrease your appetite. It really depends on the type of training that you're doing. So it depends on the intensity and it also can depend on the duration of exercise. So there's several hormones that regulate hunger, also several hormones that regulate our um, digestion. And these include hormones like leptin, ghrelin, CKK. And it's also, I guess, when we think about exercise intensity, the higher exercise intensity, even if it's for a short period of time, that usually will reduce our level of appetite. Whereas if we're doing a moderate level of intensity, it typically won't influence our appetite so much. And then if you're an endurance athlete where you're doing prolonged exercise, that can actually tend to dampen your your appetite at times. And we spoke about the RDI for protein. So for general population, we typically look at about 0.8 or 1 grams per kilo a day. We probably don't always talk about the distribution and the timing, whereas, as we mentioned, for athletes, we're generally looking at a higher level of intake, greater than probably around 1.6 grams per kilo a day. And we're looking at the distribution of protein, so about 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilo of body mass, and we're spreading that at least, you know, four to six hits during the the day. Then we also spoke spoke about using the adequate macronutrient distribution ranges. So that's looking at percentage of energy from carbohydrate, fat, and protein to guide intake. So we often use those for the general population and that's there to help reduce the risk of chronic diseases generally and recommendations for carbohydrate before and after exercise for athletes are generally expressed per unit of body mass. And that's because it actually relates to your muscle glycogen stores, which are very much related to your muscle and your body mass. So nutrition guidelines for the community, as we've just mentioned, tend to express carbohydrate intake goals in terms of percentage of energy. And they're typically saying around, you know, 50 or 60%. But for athletes, we tend to talk about grams per kilo of body mass. And that's because we're looking more so at the muscle fuel needs of of an athlete So in practice, the carbohydrate and energy needs of athletes are not always well synchronized and therefore it's preferable to provide recommendations for routine carbohydrate intake in grams relative to the body mass of the athlete 
and allow flexibility for the athlete to meet these intakes within the context of their actual energy needs and any other dietary goals that they have. The other ones we talked about were eating all whole grain, higher fiber options. Uh, This isn't always relevant to athletes, particularly those athletes that will have a very high energy intake need. If they're trying to get all the carbohydrate requirements through grainy cereal options, they're probably going to really struggle to meet those, you know, recommendations. So they do tend to need to get some of those foods through some more refined choices and that's okay. Also, if they're eating whole grain, higher fiber options when they're undertaking carbohydrate loading, they potentially could increase their risk of um, experiencing gastrointestinal upset leading into their event. And again, they're going to really struggle to be able to consume that amount of carbohydrate in their diet. And then we talked about reducing or minimizing salt and sodium intake. You know, we're usually recommending that for the general population because we're tending to get a bucket load a lot more than what we need. And that, you know, can have links to chronic health conditions. However, for athletes, they probably don't need to worry about that so much. And our, you know, you spoke about that really well. And then in terms of discretionary food, we minimize that for athletes. Well, we probably don't need to be as critical with discretionary foods as we do with the general population, because again, as we've mentioned, they're generally going to be burning through a lot of energy and they can probably afford to have some of those discretionary foods. And the exact recommendations for added sugar intake really do vary from country to country, but the general consensus is that sugar is unhealthy, but then we've got to think about, well, what is excessive? What does that mean? It really does depend on the context. So it may not be as simple as a certain number of teaspoons of sugar that's going to be bad for everyone in all situations. For example, when carbohydrate is ingested during exercise, there's really little or no insulin or glucose spike. And during intense exercise, insulin may even decrease despite glucose ingestion. And then thirdly, and importantly, these changes in insulin and glucose, normal physiological responses, they're transient changes And these changes reflect the balance between uptake and disposal um, of glucose um, in, in the muscle. And they're very much different to having chronically high blood glucose levels. And then if energy intake is not in excess of energy expenditure, so people are either in energy balance or they are losing weight, then there's no convincing evidence that sugar intake has any actual negative health consequences. We spoke about supplements being unnecessary and or a waste of of money. And we spoke to a while ago, Greg Shaw, relating to, to supplements. And we would say that 
no, it's not um, a waste of, of money or it's not unnecessary. Again, it really does depend on, on context. But some of those supplements that can be useful for athletes could be things like protein, particular micronutrients, multivitamins, and other ergogenic supplements, things like creatine and caffeine, which we've spoken about in the podcast as well. And finally, enjoy a wide variety of nutritious foods from the five five food groups every day. And so, you know, it's okay that athletes don't do this every day. There's going to be times in their life that they can't always do that. For example, if they are practicing carbohydrate loading leading into an event or if they're doing a, a particular race. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, we've only got three questions left to bring us home, Steph. So this one was actually our most downloaded episode of the year, and in fact, our most downloaded episode of all time in the podcast. I think it really hit a chord somewhere with with a lot of people. And that question was, what is metabolic adaptation and why is it important with our guest, Dr. Jose Areta from Liverpool John Moores University? So we discussed the fact that there's a whole bunch of different terms that are thrown around in terms of metabolic compensation, adaptive thermogenesis, metabolic adaptation, even metabolic damage in some circles is the term that's used sometimes. But I guess the definition that that Jose went with was a reduction in the energy expenditure that is greater than what would be predicted for the change in someone's body composition. In other words, what we would predict using a prediction equation. So generally speaking, as people gain or lose weight, we would expect that the amount of calories their body burns in a day will change with that. And that's outside of training. That's just at rest. But sometimes you can see changes in energy expenditure that go outside of that or are greater. And so for resting metabolic rate, so basically the amount of calories you burn at rest, what we consider to be greater than predicted would be a change in RMR that's more than 10%, usually 10% lower than what an equation would predict. Now, the reduction in the actual activity or the energy expenditure of our cells in the body or our organs, depending on how you want to think about it, uh, that's a different to, I guess, the effect of the organs physically shrinking as we change body composition. We tend to think about body fat, we tend to think about muscle mass, but our organs can physically change size as well as we we gain or, or lose weight a little bit. And this will contribute to changes in energy expenditure. But what we're talking about here is a reduction that's independent of that. So this is a potential response to low energy availability. So basically a lack of calories relative to the amount of physical activity or exercise or training that we're doing. Although we do need a lot more research in this area to tease it out. There's very few studies in athletes. They're all sort of short term, you know, two to five days maybe. Uh, and currently they're all in female athletes, which is kind of the opposite of, of most of the research we have. And that's because this area of low energy availability and the health consequences actually came from what used to be the female athlete triad. So it was recognized in female athletes before it was in males. Now, the effect of an energy deficit or this low energy availability on resting metabolic rate can be measurable, but the effects are relatively small. We're looking sort of 10 to 20% at the most. So, yeah, the average person's resting metabolic rate probably sits somewhere between about 1,400 and, and 2,000 calories a day. So we're looking at changes of, you know, maximum about 400 calories a day, usually probably less than 200 calories a day. 
So that's probably a lot less than some of the effects that people talk about online where they might be talking about, you know, 500 plus calories a day. We're just not seeing that in the science. But there may be other compensatory effects, which we, I guess, expand this term of metabolic adaptation to another term that is known as metabolic compensation. So metabolic compensation is not just saying the amount of calories you burn at rest changes, but also the amount of calories you burn in your day-to-day activities changes as well. So this may be where people become more sedentary outside of their training. They tend to be a bit more lethargic, a bit more just sit on the couch and do nothing rather than up and about and doing things. Now, this kind of activity is very difficult to measure, so it's rarely quantified in research, and there really is a lack of data, particularly in athletes in this area. A lot of the research is more from the the obesity sphere in terms of the the scientific evidence, but there is a lot of talk amongst athletes about this. And so you you see this anecdotally, you know, the cyclist who sits on the couch all day after they've done a long ride, something like that. Does any of this explain that person who, who swears black and blue, they only eat 1200 calories a day and still can't lose weight? Well, it may be part of the explanation for that. But it's probably also likely that their 1,200 calories a day that they're eating or saying that they're eating is possibly an underestimate. And we know that it is very easy to underestimate the amount of calories you eat as well as you know maybe there being this compensation in the amount of calories you expend in the day. Does this effect explain kind of the reduced resting metabolic rate that we see with relative energy deficiency in sports, so that consequence of of low energy availability, possibly. But as we discussed in the podcast, often we don't catch it in the act. You know, often by the time that someone has a a stress fracture or an injury or an illness, and then they come in and get their resting metabolic rate tested, the energy availability has come back to normal. And so when we measure it, the resting metabolic rate looks normal as well. Some degree of metabolic adaptation is a completely normal process within the body and it's not harmful to performance, uh, and certainly in the short-term, medium-term, probably not harmful to health either. And this you know, constant adaptation makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. It's you know, the, the person who's encountered a, a lack of food in their environment for a period of time is going to compensate by burning a bit less calories until there is more food available. That's a normal response. It's only when it is severe or over a really long period of time that it becomes a little bit of an issue. And spoiler alert, our next podcast is going to look at this issue in particular. There is a hypothesis out there called the constrained energy expenditure hypothesis. And this is particularly relevant, I guess, to people with really high training volumes or some of the ultra endurance events, particularly the multi-stage ones. And that's the theory that the amount of energy we can expend in a day is actually limited by our energy intake or which is essentially energy availability if we kind of think about it mathematically. And there's some evidence for this in hunter-gatherers and subsistence farmers, and that comes from the work of Herman Ponzer. And there is a small amount of work in multi-week ultra-endurance running events as well, but it is still very early days. But it basically suggests that the gut kind of limits the, the total amount of calories we can get into the body in a day. And the amount of calories we can get into the body in a day essentially is going to create a limit to our energy availability, and that's then going to potentially constrain our energy expenditure. So it's a very interesting hypothesis, but we need a lot more data before we can be really certain about that. But I think regardless of any of that, the message here is that eating more to ensure energy availability, particularly when we have a large training volume, which is probably over you know, 15, 20 hours a week, is going to be important. 
Our next question was, should I change my caffeine use based on my genetics? And we were joined by Gabrielle Barreto and Dr. Brian Saunders, both from the University of Sao Paulo. So Gabrielle is doing this as part of his PhD research. So when we talk about the genetic aspect here, we're talking about one particular gene called cytochrome P451A2, or the CYP1A2 gene. And this gene encodes for an enzyme that is responsible for metabolizing about 95% of all the caffeine that we ingest into its excretable metabolites, things that the body can get rid of, essentially. Uh, And basically, there's a couple of genetic variations that you can have within this particular gene. And so that can affect the, the amount of that enzyme that is produced and the activity of that enzyme, which then affects the way the caffeine is metabolized. So there's three basic combinations or, or genetic variations here. We've got the AAs, and this just refers to the, the base um, of the, the, the gene. So AAs are basically your fast caffeine metabolizers. AC is your intermediate metabolizers, and CC is your slow metabolizers. Now, sorry, AAs and ACs represent about 80% of the population, about 40% each. And the CCs, the slow metabolizers, is the remaining 10%. So it's a pretty small part of the population. Now, there are several studies that have presented evidence showing a greater performance benefit from caffeine supplements if you're a fast or an intermediate metabolizer. So if you're an AA or an AC compared to the slow metabolizers of caffeine, the CCs. Now, those who are those slow metabolizers actually may still get the same benefit from caffeine, but they potentially need a higher dose of caffeine, as high as six milligrams for every kilo of body weight. And they may need to take it earlier before exercise, up to two hours, sort of one and a half to two hours before exercise to get the same benefit that you would if you're a fast or an intermediate metabolizer who might only need half that dose, three milligrams per kilo, about one hour before exercise. So it may be that the genetic testing is not to say these people will do worse on caffeine or shouldn't take caffeine, but it may be they need to take caffeine differently. Now, to finish up with, genetic testing for this particular gene is available in some countries, but it is certainly not cheap in a lot of countries. But I guess if you're an athlete who has you know some financial support, you don't want to leave any stone unturned in terms of optimizing your performance, you have the income to spend, then it may be a worthwhile investment to get this sort of testing done, especially because it's not going to be particularly obvious. You're not going to be able to just sort of, you know, lick your finger and stick it up in the wind and go, oh, this is which variant I am of this particular gene. It's not going to be that simple to kind of figure out. Awesome. And then we asked the question, how do I fuel double session days? And this one was in-house and then we were joined by Jenny Zenka, who is an elite age group triathlete. Yeah, Athletes need to consider a number of factors on double session days when it comes to considering their nutrition preparation. They need to think about the timing of the sessions, a.m. or p.m. Do they have time to consume something prior to their session or not? And what is the time duration between each session? Does the athlete have less than eight hours between sessions Or if your next session is less than eight hours away, then you do have limited recovery time and the athlete then needs to get clever with their nutrition planning, especially if the next session is going to be a quality one. 
However, if your next session is not going to be that demanding and it's lower quality, it's an easy, shorter type session, then you may not need to worry too much at being super, super proactive in your nutrition. The athlete also needs to consider how demanding the session's actually been. Has that first session actually demanded a lot from the muscle fuel fuel carbohydrate stores or was it more of a lighter, less demanding session? And we chatted to Dr. Isabella Russell back in episode 14A about recovery nutrition and what needs to be considered in terms of what an athlete needs to eat and drink after training. And so she referred to the five R's, which, as I mentioned, that's back in episode 14A. There's also a handy educational social media post that we um, developed, Al, and that related to this question. And it went through key things to consider when planning out your recovery nutrition. So things like what's the duration, what's the absolute intensity of the session and exercise, because this will influence, as we mentioned, the amount of carbohydrate that's used it will influence how much fluid's lost. It's going to influence what the overall stress on the body is. So if you flick back through our Instagram or Facebook profiles, it's posted on January the 11th of this year. Another question we need to ask is what's the purpose of the session? How important is it that you've recovered fully fully between um, sessions? And I guess double session days typically result in an athlete expending a reasonable amount of energy across the the day. So they have a high energy expenditure. So whilst each session on paper may not actually look like it's all that demanding in isolation, if you actually put them together into a single session, then it can add up quite quite significantly. So for that reason, sometimes you need to consider the fueling in these sessions a little more aggressively than if you were just doing them in isolation. Absolutely. All right. And that brings us to the end of all the question-based episodes that we've had in the last year. Our last episode prior to this one was actually our third birthday celebration episode, and we looked at how nutrition has evolved in pro cycling with our guest, Nikki Strobel, who's a performance chef and now dietitian, formerly with the Green Edge team and Uno X. And he's now moved on to work with Israel Premier Tech for next year. So we had a great chat with with Nikki about, I guess, the changes that have happened in pro cycling in that in that time. And it was actually really interesting. I was reflecting on that the other day with someone else and, and talking about the fact that a lot of the stuff that they're now doing in the last four or five years in professional cycling in Europe was stuff that I remember doing with with people in the domestic cycling league here in Australia 10 years ago when they were having doctors adding amino acids to drinks and food and things like that. We were getting on with giving people, you know, 90 grams an hour of carbohydrate in the Melbourne to Warrnambool and things. So had a bit of a, a chuckle about that. But, yeah, how, how the wheel slowly turns in some parts of the world, Steph. Mm, yeah, yeah, and in elite sport too, you know, like it's 
can sometimes be slower to to turn. So yeah, yeah, that's that's because as we pointed out, they need some good qualified sports dietitians to you know fund us to come help your elite sports teams mm. out. Yeah, absolutely. Which which they now have, which is great. Yeah, yeah. So that was our final podcast episode of the year and we just wanted to say a huge thanks to our guests this year on the podcast who we've mentioned throughout this episode and to everyone who's listened to an episode or better yet still who have subscribed or who have followed us and left questions, comments or words of support on social media They've left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. They've signed up to our email newsletter and, of course, purchased a copy of our new ebook. It helps show us that the content is useful and it's being uh, appreciated. So we really do thank you for that. And our, our next episode. Yeah, so it'll be the first episode of 2024 for Fueling Endurance, episode 70. And this one, again, is not necessarily a specific question, but we thought it was a really important topic to cover, Steph. So we're going to have a look at what's new in REDS, or Relative Energy Deficiency in Sports. So some listeners might be aware that the Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport position statement from the International Olympic Committee was first published in 2014. It was updated in 2018. And it was updated again just a few months ago towards the end of 2023. So we're bringing back our very first ever podcast guest, Steph, from episode 1A of the podcast, Professor Louise Burke from Australian Catholic University, who was one of the authors of all three of these REDS position statements with the IOC. So we had a great chat to her. We recorded that the other week about what's new in this area, what has changed in the position statement, and most importantly, what that actually means for a runner, cyclist, and triathlete. So we're able to ask her exactly what they, as the statement authors, want athletes to know about REDS and what's maybe changed in terms of our knowledge around this since the last update in 2018. So, yeah, really exciting to have Louise back and have a great to have a chat with her. Yeah, yeah. And as always, we will love and leave you. We wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And, yeah, once again, thank you for supporting Fueling Endurance. Yep, absolutely. And, of course, Steph, we forgot to say when we'll be back. Oh, yes. So I think we will be back. on the second week of January. So that's the week beginning the 8th of January. So you should expect to see podcast episode drop around the Thursday of that week, Australian time, which is the 11th. Sounds good. Awesome. All right, well, take care, everyone. Have a great holiday season, and we'll see you in 2024. See you then.